One of the characteristics uh, that I find so beneficial and helpful to my spirit is the fact that we honor missionaries. We listen to the stories of God's call in their lives. We pray for them. We support them. We send them. And then we look eagerly for those reports on what God is doing in and through their lives so that we can pray more efficiently after that. I was 14 years of age when Peter Udarian, Roger Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, and Jim Elliott were killed in the rainforests of Ecuador. Some of you men heard me tell you how important that story is to me and was to me. It called me into ministry. Those men were killed by spears and arrows from Urani Indians because the Indians were dreadfully afraid of white people. White people like rubber tappers and the employees of the Shell Oil Company who indiscriminately kidnapped and killed tribal people. These missionaries had been flying over the jungles for a few days looking for settlements of Indians. They wanted to make contact. And they finally found a clearing where there was a young man and two young women. And Nate Saint, the pilot of the plane, began to circle his plane, very tight circles, so that he could lower a lower rope with a basket full of gifts. And it was stable enough so that hesitantly, those Indians were able to pluck the gifts out. And that went on for a few hours, and then over a matter of days, until finally there were different groups of tribal people coming out of the jungle and gaining enough courage to put their own tokens of gifts of welcome into the basket for the white men in the plain. These missionaries were there to give gifts, and the very best gift that they had was a gift that was going to take some time to deliver. And that was the gospel, the very same gospel that has changed Paul's life so dramatically. These missionaries knew that if these indigenous people could hear the good news in their dialect, could understand it, and then could believe it, that their lives would be absolutely transformed. They become new creations, just like you and just like me. All of their efforts came to an end on January the 8th, 1956. In 1960, I was 18 years of age. And I went to a conference, and at that conference, I met Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim, and I met Rachel Saint, the sister of Nate. And I was there to listen to them tell the story of the past two and a half years when they had lived in the very village from which the killers of their men had come. The killers were still there. And in that short span of time, they managed to understand a good bit of the dialect, and they began to build these relationships. Steve Saint was just a boy when his dad was killed. But he lived with his sister in that village for periods of time. And then as he grew into adulthood, he married and had children. And over the decades, he lived in that village for lengthy periods of time until he became a family member and they were family to him as well. Christine and I and our two children, when they were small, managed to walk the very soil 
where these men had lived in Shelmira and from where their plane had taken off for the very last time. I've always admired missionaries, but I have never, ever met a missionary like the Apostle Paul. He died a martyr, too. He was a theologian, a philosopher of sorts. He was also an evangelist. He walked over 10,000 miles from place to place to preach the gospel. And he wrote this immense body of work. He spent five and a half years in custody, some of which was on death row before his execution. Today, seminaries and colleges would gladly bestow honorary doctorates on this guy. Modern central Turkey is the place that Paul knew as Galatia. Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the elders of the church in Antioch to go there with a specific assignment. They should preach the gospel to the Galatians. And there were many people that immediately believed, and they were comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, however, had such a significant advantage because they had centuries of theology. They knew about the covenant of God with people. They knew about the prophets. They knew about the law. They had all of that. The Gentiles had none of it because they had been polytheists. They believed in many gods, and so all of this was brand new. Both the Gentiles and the Jews believed in the message that Paul and Barnabas brought to them. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And then Paul and Barnabas would take these believers, and they would form churches in a number of cities, like Italia and Perga and Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. In these past couple of weeks, we have together been learning that something very horrible happened to the theology of the Galatians. It was the very first real controversy in the early church, and it had to do with how one is justified in the sight of a holy God. There were some Jews who were coming to their Gentile brothers and sisters and saying to them, it's not enough for you simply to believe in Jesus Christ. You have to obey some of the Jewish laws. This was no minor matter to Paul. This was absolutely flawed legalistic theology as compared to by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone theology. And Paul took great exception to this. He even had issues with his friend Peter. Peter, of course, it came to this particular incident when he sat with a number of Gentile believers. They were all brothers in Christ. He was the sole Jew at the table. They were having a meal together. It was contentment all around the table until some Jews showed up. Now, Jews traditionally had no relationships with Gentiles, but these were all Christians now. Peter, however, in a hypocritical demonstration, stood up from the Gentile table, walked over to the Jewish table, sat down with them as if he didn't want to insult his Jewish comrades, but it wasn't important not to insult the Gentiles. And Paul has something to say about that. We learned this from uh, Daniel Golan in the second week in our series here of Galatia, Galatians. He took us to chapter 1 of Galatians, verses 6 and 7, and this is what it says. 
I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Peter really had a problem, and Paul had found it as well. Galatians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He took issue with Peter, not privately, but in public because so many people were following his example. This is what it says. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to Judaism? That's the Greek term used here. You don't see it. It's to Judaize those Gentiles, to make them live like Jews. And so we now have the word Judaizer, one who compelled somebody to become a Jew. Paul's upset was certainly understandable. He had a hand in starting these churches. He loved the believers in those churches, and now he's trying to make a course correction. And we've come now to the 17th verse of Galatians chapter 2 to the end of the chapter, verse 21. This is God's word, and this is what it says. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Five verses. Five points to establish sound theology. Not sound as in audio, but sound as in reliable and correct. Greg George Orwell wrote a very small book entitled Animal Farm. And his little book told the story of a group of animals who were rebelling against their human farmer. The rebellion went south very quickly under the dictatorship of a pig named Napoleon. And Orwell's book really was a polemic against totalitarianism. We don't use the word polemic very much ourselves in everyday conversation, but a polemic is to take a position and then have arguments to support it. Paul had a position. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ And that's it. And he had arguments. We've heard some of them in these past weeks. He's going to reiterate some of those today or reframe them a little bit. The very first point is found in verse 17. Sound theology explains sin. It does not excuse it. Verse 17 again says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. 
One of the arguments that the Judaizers used was, sounded something like this. Because you insist that believing in Jesus Christ is enough to be justified before God, and you dismiss any possibility that you have to also obey some of the law in order to be complete, then you're choosing to live a life that is sinful and, and, and uh, degenerate. And Paul dismisses that out of hand. In fact, he takes that argument and he frames it as a dialogical question in verse 17, which is to ask a question and then to provide the answer. And so he basically says something like this. If we claim that to believe in Jesus Christ is all that is required to be justified before God, and we subsequently sin, does that mean that Jesus Christ condones our sin? Does that mean that he promotes sin? To that he says, that's absolutely untrue. It's preposterous. But why is Paul so adamant about it? Because he's already settled the justification question in the verse that Andy preached last week. And that was verse 16. I'm going to add verse 15 to it. And this is what it sounds like. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Sounds a little bit like circuitous thinking for slow learners, doesn't it? But Paul knows what he's talking about. Absolutely not, he says. Second point is found in verse 18. Verse 18 says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And the point is, sound theology puts our minds at rest. You've seen it. I've seen it too. A brand new home, lavishly decorated from the outside, that's all we can see, in a community of 50-year-old homes. I still can't get over the fact that a builder, a contractor, an owner will buy a city lot with an old house that's 50 years old, demolish that thing, and then build, and he's paid a million, two, three, and then he rebuilds this enormous thing, which costs what? Million, two, million? Total cost, three and a half, four million dollars, I don't know. Now, just suppose that somebody buys that old house, tears it down, he's paid a million too, and he rebuilds on that site a home that is the identical square footage footprint of the old one. It looks just like the old one, and you and your friend are looking at that builder and looking at the home, and you're saying, the wheel is spinning, but the hamster's dead. (laughs) And Paul, Paul says, you know, as boneheaded as that sounds, it would be even more boneheaded for me, now having trusted in Jesus Christ and had my redemption assured, to go back to trying to prove myself to God all over again. Because what he had done is to tear down all of his dependency on his Jewish traditions and being justified by law. He's not going to start rebuilding that all over again. And neither will we. 
The third point is found in verse 19, and this is what it says. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Three phrases. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, the law is the foundational Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, and then all of the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws that God gave to the Jews in order to guide them to live holy lives because he said to them, I want you to be holy as I am holy. Christine and I have lived in a strata community for a number of years now, and the very first document that we received was a sheet of bylaws. Well, that's a surprise. I read them. How could I have known that I could not party after 11 p.m. if I had not read that bylaw. I suppose that I fall asleep at 10 o'clock might have been a clue, but... Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I have a $10 a month fit for less membership. You can also pay $20 a month if you want to. But I can use all the machines. I can use the weights. I can't go into the tanning rooms. That's for $20 members. I'm not supposed to sit in the vibrator chairs. Not supposed to. Oops. I told you I... I'm a member or an occupant in a strata environment. Listen to what Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 say. See, Paul had already learned what law can do and what it can't do, and this is what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The bylaws in my complex allow me to plant vegetables in an assigned raised garden bed. I can wash my car in the appropriate car wash spot. Can't park my car in a visitor's parking lot. And I can't park my car in the fire lane. I can't make any physical changes to my unit without council permission. I can't hang my laundry on my deck. But let's suppose this. Ronald James Unruh. That's me. Ronald James Unruh died yesterday at 4 p.m. Time doesn't matter. I just want you to know I'm dead. At the moment that my spirit left my body, those bylaws no longer had any jurisdiction over me. I died to the bylaws. And that's what Paul says. He died too. Why? Because he learned that the law could teach him right from wrong, but it could not confer upon him the power to do what was right. And so he accumulated this debt load of sin But the law could not provide a remedy for that, and it couldn't bring him to heaven. 
faith in Jesus Christ changed everything for Paul. Just like him. You and I, no longer, after putting faith in Jesus Christ, have to do, 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 work, 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 in order to make ourselves fit for the presence of God. Now we spend our lives in order to honor him and to please him and to serve him. Nate Saint, before he died, journaled. Every day he wrote something that God had said to him or some original thought that came to mind. And after he died, his journal was published. It became so important for many readers. There were so many memorable things that he said. One of those statements was this, and he'd given his life so that others might know Christ. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The Apostle Paul has written so much, much of which is memorable, and you've memorized some of this. Verse 20 stands out like that. Listen to verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So remarkable. I've been crucified with Christ. It's an unusual thing to say. It's not untrue. It's just uncommon. Pretty difficult to slip that into an ordinary conversation with somebody. Hi, Ron, how are you doing? I haven't called you lately, but you've been on my mind. I just wonder how you're doing. And I say, well, thanks for asking about me. I, actually, I had a couple of challenges a little while ago, but today I'm really feeling fine. And by the way, I've been crucified with Christ. You have to have reasons for saying something like that. And Paul had reasons for saying something like that because for him it explained how he had become so different a person from what he once was because before he was anti-Christ, anti-Christian, now he was an absolutely sold-out campaigner for Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer, he was a theologian and a pastor and a prolific author, and he wrote a book in 1976 that ignited my intellect. He was doing a study, he was doing a research of world history and world thought, and he was tracing Western civilization from ancient Rome to the time he was writing. And he was thinking about the changing patterns of human thought. So he entitled his book, How Should We Then Live? Folks at Crossridge, I can't imagine a time in the last 20 years, that I feel more compelled that we need to be asking that question again. How should we then live? Some of you are sitting here today, and you are filled with despair about our society and about education and about government, and you think about world economy and world governance and world health that are fluid and uh, perilous. Morality and ethics are in free fall without parachutes. And there are advances in technology and in artificial intelligence that are accelerating at such a rate. The relevant question to be asked right now is, for all of us here in Crossridge, 
within the Clova building, how are we supposed to live outside this place? How should we then live? Schaefer made a statement in that book I've mentioned. See if it's relevant to you, if it strikes a chord. When the majority embrace a value system that has no absolutes, but rather sees each person as one's own measure of what is right or wrong, since all values are relative, that independence seems like freedom, but results in anarchy. As I say this next sentence, I want you to pretend you're the one who's saying it. If I base my thinking on humanism, my value system is determined by my own measure of what is right or wrong. So I am independent, I'm autonomous, all of my values are relative, and I am the one who determines what is right and wrong. It seems like freedom. I determine what is right and wrong depending on whether it's useful to me or functional to me or practical for me. Do you have any idea... Have you thought about the concept of Jesus Christ living in you? What that means, how it happens, how he does it? Who it is that's in here? Let me start it this way. In the beginning, everything was formless, void, dark. The Spirit of God hovered, was present, active. With a breath of God's mouth, he created the heavens and the earth, And with each sequential creation, he pronounced it good. And then he said, let us, plural pronoun, make humanity in our image, according to our likeness, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Not one thing that is made was made without him. For in him was life, and the life was the light of humanity. John 1. For God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten of the same substance son. So whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. How did he do that? What did he do? Mary, Mary, don't be afraid. The Most High will protect you. The Holy Spirit will conceive a child in you, a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be known as the Son of the Most High. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. An angel came to Joseph. Joseph was the man who was promised to be married to Mary. She was pregnant and he was not the biological father. Joseph, do not hesitate to take Mary as your wife. The fetus inside her has been realized by the Holy Spirit. 
Cross Ridges, this is the one who is living in us. For 30 years plus, he lived sinlessly, and he lives in us. What kind of changes will he bring? Colossians chapter 1 says, in verses 15 and 16, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. His time when earth was so short, so relatively short. He tried to prepare his disciples for it. This is what he said. In John chapter 14, the first two verses, or first verses two to four. In my father's house are many rooms. It is, if it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to be my, with myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Well, Thomas was confused. So Thomas had this interjection, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, as soon as the word Father was mentioned, then Philip was really excited. And we hear in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of my work, of the works themselves. Then he gives this promise of provision. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and you will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The most efficient cause for doing things right and thinking things correctly and responding appropriately is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He does that by the resident Spirit of God who fills us as we allow Him to fill us. Verse 21 finishes that section off this way. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's not rocket science, that little verse. Paul uses himself as an illustration once again. 
And he says, look, if I, we all, put our eggs in one basket, and that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not nullifying the grace of God because we've turned our backs on the Jewish law system. In fact, that's applauding the grace of God because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 2013, Christine and I went to a missions fest downtown. And there I had an opportunity to chat with Steve Saint. He brought with him that day somebody he called grandfather. His name was Minkiah. Minkiah was there to give his testimony, and he simply said, Since that terrible time, decades ago, I have walked God's path because I believed God's markings in the book. Minkiah died last year in April 2022 at the age of 85, and he's in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cross Ridgers, let's promise each other together today that from now until you're as old as I am, we will be faithful. Can we do that? Can we do that? Be faithful.